Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are, are our salvation. That we, you do not help us with salvation, that you are our salvation. And Lord, we pray that as your word is now proclaimed over your people, we pray that you would make me faithful to do that and that you would use uh, your word to strengthen your people by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 36 and 37 today. Today, Isaiah, today. Sorry. Isaiah. Not Isaiah. Not today. Isaiah 36 and 37. Um, what will be helpful before we read that passage is to get a little bit of context. First of all, uh, Hezekiah is the king of Judah at this time. Judah is actually the southern tribes, the, the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel split uh, many years before that. And so Hezekiah is the king in Jerusalem in Judah. And that is the portion of Israel that kind of-ish remained faithful to the Lord. And Hezekiah is actually the latest in a long line of kings from the house of David. So he's a, a son of David. He has this official title, the son of David. So he is the anointed king of God's people. And anointed, you'll mean, actually just means Messiah. Or Messiah actually just means anointed. And so we could call him the little M Messiah. Messiah with a lowercase m. He is the anointed king of God's people. He is the son of David. And his performance as a king, uh, with his performance as a king, the whole nation's uh, future and fate rises and falls with the son of David. God designed Israel this way, that their head, their federal head, especially the son of David, as he goes, so goes it with the rest of the kingdom. So there's a lot riding on the performance of this king, on his righteousness, on his obedience to the Lord, his trust in the Lord. Hezekiah is the latest in the kings and the, the sons of David, this wonderful title, the son of David. Hezekiah was facing a, a threat from Assyria, this mighty empire coming from the east. And Hezekiah made a couple of major blunders. The first blunder is that he trusted Egypt rather than the Lord to save him from the Assyrians. He's trusting in Egypt. He's trying to make an allegiance with Egypt. Egypt hated Assyria, and they were trying to get people on their side. Let's rebel against Assyria. Let's, let's revolt against Assyria. Let's, let's have this, uh, th this coalition that's going against Assyria. And God warned Hezekiah and the kings of Judah, don't do this. Don't trust Egypt. There's one thing the kings of, of Judah were not supposed to do is not to trust Egypt. Like that was like job number one. He trusted in Egypt. The second major blunder he did is he actually trusted in Assyria. This threat is coming. And the king of Assyria makes this kind of a deal with him. If you give me a lot of gold, I will spare you. Again, the prophets are like, don't trust them. This is not something you can trust in. He's going to betray you. But Hezekiah, being a very smart, wise man, he takes the bet. He takes it. And he takes all of his own treasure and he pays off the king of Assyria. He runs out of money, so he has to take from the temple. 
Oh, he takes the gold vessels from the temple. He's robbing the temple of God to pay off Assyria. Major blunder. And so today we have... Uh, we, we face this historical situation where the, the king of Assyria has mounted an attack against Judah, has shockingly betrayed this deal he made with Hezekiah. If you give me all the gold from the temple, I will not attack you. He's shockingly betrayed this. And now the city of Jerusalem, or more poetically called Zion, is surrounded by the enemies of God. This is actually a very wonderful story. It's a historical account that God will use to shepherd his people from that time forward. Whenever the people of God, the church of God, are surrounded by enemies that hate God, that hate his Messiah, hate the son of David, and hate his people. God orchestrated this event. He moved these guys around like pawns to demonstrate some, something very sweet to his people. And so, dear church, this is God's shepherding word to you and me, that we would know what to do when we feel surrounded by a world, by powers that hate the son of David, the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his people, Zion, his bride, the church. So let's pick it up. We're going to find our first point from the first 10 verses of Isaiah 36, and this is Uh, Our first point is this, the son of David is mocked by the nations. Isaiah 36, let's read 1 to 10. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he who's, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for horses and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord, that I have come against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Thus far, God's word. So our first point, the son of David is mocked by the nations. So first of all, the first attack is actually uh, Sennacherib sends the Rabshakeh. What a wonderful word, right? Sounds like Narnian, right? 
His, his official, his top official, his uh, field official, the Rabshakeh, gives a message from the king of Assyria, the great king of Assyria. He's all this pomp and circumstances announcement. And he's mocking the head of Israel. He's mocking the little M, Messiah. He's mocking the son of David. And in so doing, he's actually mocking all of Israel, all of God's people as a whole, because of course, they knew that their fate was set up with the son of David. If this man is a fool, then they are fools. If this man falls, they all fall. They fall, they rise and fall with the son of David and God's promises to the son of David. Their hope was tied to the son of David. I hope you can see with me four points of shame that the Rabshakeh is giving to, uh, to, to bringing against the son of David, right? He's mocking the son of David in front of all the people. He wants this to have an effect on them. Four points of shame. First of all, he's shaming him. He's shaming Hezekiah for trusting in Egypt. Remember, he calls him a broken staff that pierces hands that lean on it. Imagine like leaning on a staff that has a sharp end. Well, that's not going to go well. Secondly, he's mocking him for trusting in the Lord because Hezekiah removed all the altars and high places, except one, in the land. He's saying, you, you trust in the Lord, that's not going to go well for you because you actually betrayed the Lord by getting rid of all the altars. Third thing he actually mocks him for is the fact that he has no human strength. He gives him that bet with horses, right? And then fourthly, he mocks him for trusting in the Lord. He's like, the Lord's the one who told me to attack Judah. So let's take these in order. First of all, He's mocking him for trusting in Egypt, that broken staff that pierces hands that lean on it. You can, you can see this in, uh, in, verse, in, in verse 4 and 5 and 6 specifically. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken rod of a uh, reed of a staff, right? And this is, is this true or false? This mocking, he's shaming the son of David. Is this a true or false shame? It's actually true. It's actually true. He should be ashamed for doing these things. This was true. Hezekiah did this, and so he dishonored the Lord, but he also dishonored the entire nation by doing this. He disobeyed a direct command. He disobeyed a direct command. Now, imagine you are your parents, and you are leaving for a little bit, and you give some like vague instructions to your kids. Guys, don't be mean to each other. And then just for good measure, you give a really specific thing. Don't stomp on each other's toes. All right. Well, it's a good application of that principle. Don't be mean to each other. So imagine that the, the children, when the parents are gone, are being mean to each other, but one child has the audacity of like, I'm going to do the specifically the one thing that they say don't do. I'm going to start stomping on my sibling's toes. This is essentially what Hezekiah did by trusting in Egypt. The kings of Israel were instructed, of course, do not make alliances where you have to treat somebody as a king of kings and do not disobey God. And specifically the kings of Judah were like, never go to Egypt to get horses or aid. Never do that. Never go back to Egypt for help. I rescued you from Egypt. Don't go there. And so you can imagine, like the people of Israel who love the Lord as they see Hezekiah going to Egypt, like, oh, this isn't going to end well. This was a shameful thing. But this is kind of, this is a true shame, but it's actually gone wrong because that Rabshakeh is not mocking him for trusting in a nation. He's saying, well, your, your issue is that you didn't trust the right nation. So this is a, a mockery. The son of David is a fool because he just trusted in the wrong nation. You should trust in nations and kingdoms and, and empires. You just trusted the wrong one. 
The second one is that he trusted in the Lord. This was a, a shame that he's bringing and, and saying, you, you shouldn't trust the Lord because Hezekiah is a fool for trusting that the Lord is going to save him because he actually shamed the Lord by removing all the altars in high places. Is this true? Did Hezekiah do this? In fact, he did do this. But it was a good thing that he did it because the kings before him had erected all kinds of altars in high places to worship the Lord and to offer sacrifices in all kinds of places around the country. But God said, no, only in Jerusalem shall I have a temple. See, even then, God was, tra- was training his people. There's one place and one place alone to go for atonement. One place. Go to the place where I'm offering atonement in my temple in Jerusalem. God was teaching them that there is only one name, only one way, only one altar, only one salvation. Of course, we know that that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one name to be saved. Only one sacrifice by which we can be saved. So Hezekiah as part of his reforms of the nation, got rid of all of that extra worship that they had thought, well, maybe this is an improvement. But this is, the kings of the world said, this is a shameful thing. How can you expect a God to honor you and to actually save you if you're not doing all the extra worship things that man can create? This is also true in our day, brothers and sisters. We are often shamed by not adopting different worship practices other than the ones that the Lord specifically commanded us. Do these things. Worship me this way. Know me this way. I will reveal myself through these things. And the church is often considered foolish for obeying the Lord Jesus and saying, worship me in these ways. It's seen as a sign of weakness that we're restricting ourselves to these kinds of worship, that the Lord would be known. But it's actually a strength of Hezekiah that he did this and he brought these reforms. The third shame is that, the, that Hezekiah had no human strength. Was this a true shame or a false one? Was it true? It was true. Hezekiah was comparatively very weak compared to the king of Assyria. So the Rabshakeh is bringing a true shame. But the problem is, not the problem, the mistake is he didn't need human strength. The whole point is you, you, you trust in the Lord and his promises and not in human strength. And this is also a shame that the the rulers of the world will bring against our Messiah. Why are you trusting in him? He doesn't seem all that strong. These empires and these cultures, they seem way stronger. These huge businesses and the the cultural movements, these things seem much more powerful. You need to trust in something that has human strength, human might, human power, or you're a fool. And then the fourth thing is, the fourth shame that the Rabshakeh brings is that he trusted in the Lord. He said, the Lord is actually on my side. Was it true that the Lord sent Sennacherib to go attack Jerusalem? Is that true? Or is that lies? It's true. God, in fact, did send Sennacherib to do this. Now, we don't think that actually the Lord met with uh, Sennacherib and said, I want you to attack Jerusalem. No, no. The Lord told his prophets, I'm sending the king of Assyria to go attack Jerusalem as a punishment for what you have done. And so we see there must have been spies. There must have been Sennacherib's spies in Jerusalem, in Judah, to hear these prophecies that were coming from Isaiah. He had heard that the God of Israel had sent him to go attack Jerusalem. 
But what he missed is that that didn't mean that God was on his side. In fact, the reason that God sent Sennacherib to go to Jerusalem to attack, to go to Judah Judah to attack, is not because God had abandoned Judah. Actually, it was precisely because God had not. God had sworn to discipline her when she sinned, to bring her back, to show foolish the ways that she had trusted in other gods and other idols and other things. God had promised to discipline. So actually, Sennacherib attacking Jerusalem was not a sign that God had abandoned his people, but that he was keeping that covenant. This is another way that the world will shame the Messiah or the son of David. But then the Rabshakeh, it turns from uh, insulting the king, the little M Messiah, or the son of David. And now he talks directly to the people of God, and he, he calls them, he solicits them for adultery, to turn away from God, to cheat on God. Let's see this in Isaiah 36, and we'll read from 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king of The king of Assyria, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out with me. Then each one of you will eat eat of his own vine and drink of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink of the water of his own cistern until I come and take you in away to a land to make your own land, uh, to a land like your own land, a uh, land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out, of the land, uh, out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Thus far, God's word. So now he's turned from mocking the son of David in the hearing of the people of God, And now he's turned to talk directly to them. And he's appealing to them to commit adultery. In God's view, idolatry or turning to false gods is adultery because he made a covenant with his people. He's a covenant God. He swears oath to them. It's much like a marriage. In fact, he calls it a marriage. And so turning to other gods, turning to other idols is adultery. It is the same as a wife turning to another husband. And so he's appealing to them to do these things. What are the appeals that he gives to them? The first one is shame. It's embarrassment. 
It's an embarrassment to belong to the son of David. It's an embarrassment to belong to the Lord God. What does he say? You'll be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine. That sounds unpleasant, but in addition to being unpleasant, it's also shameful, isn't it? Leave the son of David. Leave the Messiah. Leave the Lord. Leave his people, and you will avoid shame. Dear friends, there is times in which you might feel shame for trusting in the Lord God and being faithful to his Messiah, his great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that shame is only temporary, and it's only in the eyes of the world. And this is the, one of the ways in which the world will try to get you to take your eyes off, to leave, to cheat on, to turn aside from the Lord God, from his Christ, the Lord Jesus, to avoid shame. There's no glory if you don't reject the Lord God and his Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the attacks that will be waged against you when you're feeling surrounded. You don't want to be embarrassed, do you? You don't want to feel shamed. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ was ashamed instead of you. He was stripped naked and he bore your sins in shame and curse so that you could one day be clothed with his righteousness and also be glorified to enjoy his glory in the honor that he deserves. Do not be foolish enough to take this bait. There is no glory. There is only shame apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's really only two options, to be shamed for who you are and what you have done, or to be honored and glorified for what the Lord Jesus Christ did instead of you. Don't buy that lie. I want you also to see that he uses the words of the Lord against them in verse 16. He basically says what he knows Hezekiah is going to tell the people. When he tells you that Jerusalem will not fall to Sennacherib, don't trust him. Now, I, I think that this is actually a very helpful thing for us to take note of. I think sometimes when we prepare ourselves for the attacks of the world or our children, we kind of give simplistic things and we like give these like stump verses and these mic drop verses and stuff. And we, we assume that these are just not going to be answered by the, the, the people who don't love God, that they don't know the word of God and they can't come back with things. Friends, our knowledge of the word of God is helpful. It can strengthen our faith. But our confidence is not that we have better words, but because the Lord acts in history and he has kept every promise that he has ever made. No one is undefeated other than the Lord God. So this is another, another attack that they will give, this, this appeal to leave the Lord God, to cheat on him, to commit adultery on the Lord, is that you will be satisfied now. Did you notice that? He promises them what does he promise them? You get to eat from your own vine and your own fig tree and you get to drink out of your own cistern. Everybody's getting their own well. So he's, he's promising it'll actually be very good for you. And he's using language of the high watermark, the best days Judah has ever had in, in Solomon's day. And this is the promise. And you, you leave the son of David right now. Leave him right now. Leave the people of God right now. Come away from them. Cheat on them. Put your hope in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ in God's Messiah, and you right now will have a life of satisfaction. Turn away from Christ, and you will have a better job, you'll have a better marriage, you'll have a better health, you'll have better sexual pleasure, you'll have a better retirement. You'll have a better job, more jobs will open up to you. And this is often 
what the call is to get you to come away from the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a better life now, your best life now, one of the greatest false teachers of our day. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Because even if you can gain more earthly goods temporarily in this life, even if you could have more joy, it would only be temporary. But even in this life, even if you could have more money or better health or a better job or better standing in the community, these things won't satisfy you. You'll be condemned before God and you'll know it. And you'll know with all the goods that you have, you stand, you, you stand guilty before the Lord God and you are not his child but his enemy. Don't do it. But he also promises them a lovely exile in the future. Did you notice this? He cannot... He can't hide the fact that a serious MO is whenever they conquer a people, they exile them. And he realizes there's, there's no, there's no I, I, mean, I can't even pretend this isn't going to happen. Okay, we know we're going to take you by chains, we're going to put rings in your noses, and we're going to cart you off to, to Assyria. We, let's, let's, we're just going to do this, but it'll be good. He couldn't hide this. It's going to be great, so good, I promise. It's basically, basically just like living here. It's just so good. The future, the promise is the future of being taken by the kingdoms of the world will not be that bad. We see this even in our day. Leave the Lord Jesus. You don't want to be with him. Such a shameful thing. Even the future. Yeah, he'll send you to hell. He'll send you to hell, but, but hell will be fine. It'll be totally enjoyable. At least you won't be with God there. You have people talking at funerals at the end of life of somebody who obviously hated God, talking about how they'll be partying in hell with my boys, have a drink for me, those kinds of things. Guys, absolutely foolish. If you leave the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a lie to say your future will not be that bad. Of course it will be. Every pain that you experience in this life is just a taste, a mere preview of what hell would be. And every joy, every little bit of joy and pleasure you experience in this life is just a preview of what heaven will be. Just a preview of these things. You will receive in hell what you deserve for your sin, for your wickedness, don't be a fool to leave the son of David because the promise of being with the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that you will receive what he deserves. And what would he deserve? Only glory and blessing and honor and pleasure, enjoying the presence of the Lord God. The other, the other appeal that he has is that all other nations or religions and cultures have fallen. So yours is going to fall too. Now is this... This one is actually partly true. All the other nations and, and religions and cultures were falling to Assyria. But they're, they're foolish for thinking that this is a good reason to leave the Lord because it just proves that Assyria will also fall. Everybody who is not tied to the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who made the earth and heaven and all that is in them, they will all fall. It's not evidence to leave the son of David that other cultures have fallen, other religions have fallen. It's not evidence to, to, to leave him. Actually, it's evidence to stay with him. Because this world order that we're currently experiencing now will also fall. Assyria fell. 
Babylon, Babylon fell. The Hollywood of Harvey Weinstein fell. The LGBTQ revolution will fall. It will be replaced by something else. The British Empire fell. The American Empire is falling. The Chinese or Russian powers will fall. It will all fall. It will all fall. One will rise and one and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. The only one that will not fall is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, these things rise and fall, but that's not evidence to leave the Lord God of Israel. It is reason to stay with him. Our third point, we're going to find in the first 20 verses of, of chapter 37, and we're going to call it the ministry of the word and prayer of the son of David. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet, of, uh, prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. And therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now, the king heard that, uh, heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, he has sent out to fight against you. He has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by prom promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the, the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations of my father destroyed Gazan, Haran, Rezif, the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all, all the nations and their lands, and will cast their gods into the fire, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods. But the work of men's hand, wooden stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Thus far God's word. Hezekiah is in a very special position. He is the son of David. And so it's his responsibility to act on behalf of the people, and he does very well here, doesn't he? He has a ministry of word and prayer. First of all, he prays in humility. He humbles himself on behalf of the people and their sin. Did you notice that he says this is a day of distress and shame, but he also says it's a day of rebuke? He's saying we deserve this. 
These rebukes that we're being, are being brought against us, we deserve these things. We have sinned against you. And so he humbles himself and he prays on behalf of the people. You know, he, he rips his clothes, he wears sackcloth and, and ashes, and he prays on behalf of his people. And he was actually sinful. He had sinned to confess of his own, and he had sinned against God and against, uh, against God's commands. This is just a preview, brothers and sisters, of the great son of David and his ministry. Do you know the Lord Jesus prays for you? You and I are not very good at praying. Do you know who's very good at praying? The Lord Jesus is good at praying. And part of his ministry, as Roger read for us, is to pray on behalf of the people. He prays on our behalf. But he also humbled himself on our behalf. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that he became sin who knew no sin. And so Christ Jesus, even on the cross, humbled himself. He bore that shame of the people of God before God. He humbled himself. He was shamed on our behalf. And he prays on our behalf. He also, did you notice, Hezekiah seeks the word of the Lord. Where does he go to? He goes to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of the Lord. He's one of the Bible writers. So he has the ministry of the word and prayer. What's the prophecy that he gets from Isaiah? What does he get? First of all, the prophecy is this. There's going to be a rumor. The king, king of Assyria is going to hear a rumor that's going to cause him to leave Judah and take his attention off of Judah. And then eventually he's going to return to his own land and he's going to be killed in his own land. Prophecy of the Lord. It's going to happen. What were to happen to Isaiah if Isaiah prophesied these things and they didn't come true? What should happen to Isaiah? They're supposed to take him to a field and kill him because he made a prophecy on behalf of the Lord as a Bible writer and it would have come, it would have been proven false, but it doesn't prove false. And we see the prophecy begins to be fulfilled even in the verses that we had already read. Did you notice that? Behold, verse 7, I will put a spirit in him so he shall hear a rumor return to his own land. Well, what do you find? When the Rabshakeh finishes shaming the people of, Israel, people of Judah, he goes back to see if he can find the king of Assyria. He can't find. Where is he? He's gone somewhere else to fight already. This has already, the prophecy's already starting to come true. And so, instead, he actually sends a letter. He's leaving. He can't actually attack Judah. And he sends a letter hoping to still intimidate them. By the way, I haven't forgotten you. You should also still, don't, don't forget to turn away from the Lord. But I wonder if you noticed the message that he gives by letter is actually changed. It's slightly modified from the original message he gave. Some of it's the same. He's saying, don't trust the Lord. Don't trust the Lord. Don't trust the Lord. No other gods have been able to rescue from me. But what's missing? He's no longer mocking him for trusting in Egypt. Who's Hezekiah only trusting in right now? Hezekiah has stopped trusting in Egypt. He's stopped trusting, stopped trusting in his own might. And he has repented and is clearly only trusting in the Lord. That's the only thing that the Rabshakeh's got left. Uh, okay, well, you're trusting in the Lord. You shouldn't. You shouldn't trust in the Lord. What is the appeal that Hezekiah prays for? God save us because. What are the reasons that he gives to God to save them? Reasons why they can be confident that God will save. First of all, the glory and name of God. 
First thing he does is he, he presents this, this, this threatening letter to God in the temple, and he says, God, he starts riffing on how majestic and glorious God, God is. God, you are wonderful and power, powerful. God, do this. Save us for your own name and reputation. We don't deserve this. But you have set your name upon us. You've tied your name to us so that our fate, what happens to us, actually affects how people think of you. Friends, when you are facing distress or uncertainty, spend time delighting in the glory of God. How powerful he is, how strong he is, how wise he is, how eternal he is, how faithful he is. These will be words to soothe your soul. It can't be your strength or your worth that is your confidence, but only his power. The ministry and prayer of the son of David is effective. God has heard Hezekiah's plea, and he has rescued his people. Hezekiah was a pretty sinful son of David, though, wasn't he? If Hezekiah's son of David ministry was effective, how effective do you think the Lord Jesus' ministry to pray on our behalf is? The perfect son of David now is praying for you. How, how sure do you think that ministry is in terms of its success? Dear friends, the son of David is interceding for you right now before the throne of God. He is praying for you. When you forget to pray, when you cannot pray, he is praying for you. And if the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer, do you think he would hear the Lord Jesus' prayer? Our fourth point is this. God's Sovereignty over the nation's rage against his kingdom, his king and city. God issues direct words to, uh, to uh, the king of Assyria. We'll see this in 29, 21 to 29. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and delivered? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon, cut down the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height and its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank water, I, to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I planned? I determined that a long, uh, long ago. I planned from of old that what now I, I should, what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're going down and you're going out and you're, you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. You're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came thus far. First of all, God says to Hezekiah, I'm going to destroy this guy because you prayed for me. But hold on for a second. God actually prophesied before Hezekiah prayed that he would do this. How does that work? 
Well, God makes decrees. He makes plans. He determines the future before it happens. But then he actually causes it to come to pass. It was God's plan that Hezekiah would pray and that God would respond to Hezekiah's prayer, the son of David's prayer, and save his people. This whole, um, this whole prophecy against Sennacherib is God talking about his sovereignty. Sennacherib's pretty proud of all the things that he's accomplished. I did it because I'm strong. God's like, you didn't do it because you were strong. I planned this a long time ago. I said it was going to happen before you were born. I said it was going to happen. I was the one who planned that you would do all these things. And by the way, I see everything you do. I see you're going out and you're coming in. I see when you brush your teeth. I see when you eat food. I see when you're sleeping. I see all these things. And by the way, that means I saw you raging against me. You're raging against the son of David. That means you're raging against God. If you read Psalm 2, which we don't have time for today, you'll see it's a whole psalm about how the nations rage against the Messiah of God. And they all think they're very powerful. And they're, we're in control. We're in control. And what does God do in Psalm 2 when he sees these people raging against his Messiah? What's God's first response? He laughs at them. Oh, you think you're in control. No, I'm in control. And I use all the powers in the kingdoms of the world to accomplish my purpose, which is what? For the glory of my Messiah and his people. Our fifth and final point is this. Basically a summary of what's happening here. God's covenant is the only plea given and the only plea needed. Let's read the rest of the the chapter starting at verse 3. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go, forth, go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow or there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nish, uh, Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped to the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled. As the Lord said would happen to the king of Assyria, so it happened. There's this interim prophecy, this sort of short form, this short, short-term prophecy that proved Isaiah's prophecy and that it would hold for the rest of eternity. Sennacherib wouldn't be able to enter Jerusalem. He wouldn't even be able to shoot an arrow into it. He's going to go back to his land, and in his own land, he's going to be killed by the sword. Here's the short-term prophecy. First year, you're not going to be able to plant crops, but you'll be able to eat from what was just left in the field, the seeds that grew automatically. Second year, very similar. Third year, in the third year, you guys will be planting crops and harvesting them. This proved to them that they could actually live and rest in security under Hezekiah's reign. 
which itself then is an interim fulfillment because God kept this in history. Dear friends, this is a prophecy that the Lord will protect his church. The gates of hell will not prevail, will not prevail against his church, which is Zion, which is his bride, which is his people. Even though the gates of hell will attack against it, it will not prevail. Satan can't actually hurt the church. He cannot prevail against the church. How do we know this? Because God made this prophecy about Jerusalem, and he kept it. And so the king returns back to his land, and maybe about 20 years later, while Israel's living at peace, he's killed in his own temple, the safest place he could have imagined to be. I'm in my own land, in my own city, surrounded by my soldiers, in the temple of my God, and he's killed. Why did God do this? Did you notice that? Why did God say that he is doing this? What's the answer to that particular question? Verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. When he's saying for my sake and for the sake of my servant, he's talking about sake, sake of my servant, David. He's talking about the covenant he swore with David. Not that David was a really good person, but God swore a covenant to David that, God, that David will always have a, a, a son to reign on the throne and that he will one day have a son who will reign eternally and that he will have a kingdom to reign over. He will have a people who are redeemed, his bride. Dear friends, when you are in distress, when you consider your own sin, when you consider, consider your own life in peril, you're worried about something, maybe worried about your own sins, worried about whether the church will endure, there is one plea given. The oaths that the Lord has sworn to Zion, to the church. There's something God cannot do. God cannot lie. Don't appeal to God about how good you are. Don't appeal to God about how much better you've become after you become a Christian. When you appeal to God, when you are asking him to save you and rescue you and forgive you and care for you, appeal to his promises that he's made. This is what Hezekiah did. He appealed to the promises God made. And the Lord Jesus doesn't just appeal to those promises. He secures them with his blood. He sealed that covenant with his blood. He fulfilled that. Dear friends, it is normal and natural that you feel the call to leave Jesus, that you feel threatened, that you feel shamed, but do not, because the Lord has made an oath, he has sworn an oath to Jesus and to his people. The gates of hell will not prevail. He will treat you like sons and daughters and he will give you a future, not that you deserve, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone deserves. Do not leave him. Do not leave Zion. Because it's to her that the Lord has made promises. And God cannot, nor would he want to, break his promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the oaths that you have sworn to your people. And that we do not have to appeal to our own righteousness, our own worth, or wisdom, or might, or strength. But we can appeal to the promises that you've made to the son of David. We thank you that you have given us a perfect son of David, unlike Hezekiah. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf and he pleads for a covenant that he bought with his blood. And we thank you that you honor your promises and covenants. Lord, when we are tempted to leave, let us remember that there is nowhere to go because you alone hold the words of life. And that apart from Christ, there is only to receive what we deserve for our sins. Lord, would you strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the promises that you have made and that he has kept. We pray that you would guard your church, Zion, your bride. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.